Well, let's turn together to 2 Samuel chapter 19 today. We're coming to the end of our study of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, looking at the life of David, looking at some of the stories in his life. Now, as we go to God's Word, I think it's good every, every week, every day to, to be asking, God, what is this book all about? What is my interaction with this book? It would be a mistake to say this is something that we approach at an intellectual level. This would, this is, it would be a mistake to say this is something that we come to just to get information. This is God's chosen means of revealing himself to us. And as we come to God's word today, let's come with open hearts and expect to encounter the living God, the God who is the maker of heaven and earth, the God who came himself in the form of Jesus, who we're going to celebrate today as we take communion, the God who illuminates his word by his Holy Spirit that is here in this place today. And let's come with that humility, that openness, and say, God, meet us here. Change us in your presence. Are you with me on that? Anybody? All right, good. Some nods. All right. Well, let's dig in here to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 19. The context of this story, this is at a time in Israel's history when there has been disunity, there's been upheaval, there's been discord, there's been dissension. Has anyone ever had that in your own family, in your workplace, in your church? Have you had a need for restoration and reconciliation and hope and being reunited? Well, if that's your story, that's exactly what has happened here in Israel's history. His own son, David's own son, Absalom, has tried to steal the throne from his dad, tried to have him put to death. He's, he's taken the throne in Jerusalem, and now Absalom has been murdered by the commander of David's army, Joab, and so the whole nation is a mess. You've got half of the nation, Israel, that's divided against the southern half of the nation, Judah. You've got uh, what just come through a time of the, a, a father against his son, a king against the nation, and there's a need for unity and harmony and moving forward as God's people, and we'll see David laying the framework for that in some of his actions, in the way that he treats those who have wronged him in the past, in the way that he really leads the way in moving forward with unity. And I think in this story, we'll find some hope in our own relationships as well, where there's been disunity and there's a need for restoration. Maybe it's in a marriage where one partner has been making those repair attempts, and trying to say, hey, can we bury the hatchet? I'm sorry, can we move forward? And maybe the other party's been going, no, I want to stay mad at you a little bit longer. I'm going to make you suffer some more. And maybe in this story we'll find that encouragement to say, no, it's time to move forward with God's plan of being reunited. Maybe it's in a family where there's been uh, holding each other at arm's length and it's been years since you've talked to that one family member or they've reached out. There is a God who does miracles in families and allows those conversations to begin again. Maybe it's in a nation, at a national level, where there's been a rift, there's been tension, there's been discord, and there's an opportunity for those negotiations and those peace treaties and those kinds of things that reunite nations. Maybe among coworkers or friends, where there's just a need for an apology, an assurance of future behavior, and then that retrusting and re being trustworthy, none of these are words, I'm making them up. But you know how that is, right? There, in order for reconciliation to happen, there's that combination of being trusting and trustworthy that's needed for reconciliation to occur. So as we go to God's word today, let's learn from the lessons of his people at this time in history, those who are faithful in following him, the wisdom that comes at times from unexpected sources, people that you wouldn't expect to be taking advice from, that God speaks through them, a challenge 
a reminder, a new course correction that you need in order to, to get to that place of unity. And so here we find in 2 Samuel chapter 19 an interaction between Joab, the commander of David's army, who has just gone against David's direct order to deal gently with my son Absalom, and he has found Absalom hanging in a tree and executed him there. How would you feel if you're the king of Israel and the commander of your army just put your son to death against your commands? Probably wouldn't take advice from that guy, I'm guessing. But here's what happens in chapter 19. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. So it's, it's really this stark picture of, you know, like next Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. It'd be like the, the victorious uh, Rams after they defeat the Patriots. Um, you know, when there should be celebration and upholding that Lombardi trophy, but instead they all, they stop cheering and they kind of, the, their shoulders slump and their heads, faces droop and Norm's, I'm surprised he didn't walk out just then. Our, our lone Patriots fan, in the, well I guess the Monroes, I think there's some there as well. But that's the picture here of the nation of Israel as they're coming back celebrating that the throne of Israel is secure, David is returning, there's celebration, there's joy, the, the usurper has been put down, and yet now all of a sudden they're seeing our king is weeping, our king is grieving, and they look like people have just lost a battle instead of won a battle. So it's a, it's a dangerous scenario, and Joab, despite his past flaws, he brings some wisdom to David in this moment. The king covered his face. The king cried out in a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. I see some remarkable humility in David's response to Joab, the commander who has just gone against his explicit instructions and killed his own son. And David not, not responding not even, there's not even a word from David recorded here at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 19. Instead, he just humbly gets up, wipes the tears from his eyes, and silently goes to the gate and sits there and does exactly what Joab has just rebuked him and instructed him to do. I see some real humility in that posture. And David, 
David is recognizing that God is bringing some wisdom, even from somebody that there's still ongoing tension with Joab. We'll see here later uh, in chapters 19 and 20 as, as Joab continues down this path of taking matters into his own hands. He chooses a course of violence. He chooses a course of self-preservation. Joab is not one of these Bible heroes that we're teaching our kids about in kids' ministry. You know, be like Joab. And yet God speaks through even a guy like Joab to the king. David's able to humble himself and listen. This is the first example in these these chapters that we're going to look at today. There's a parallel to Joab bringing advice to David that we'll see in chapter 20 as God sends a wise woman to Joab in his moment of unwisdom and she gives him the wisdom that he needs in that moment. So we'll see that in just a moment. But I think as I look at this story and look at the example of David, and as we as God's people today are saying, God, what are you speaking to us? I'd encourage each of us to take that step of humbling ourselves. It's arrogance to look at my past actions and always have an explanation, a rationalization, a justification. It's arrogance to maintain continuity with who I was then and who I am today. It's humility that says, I'm a work in progress. I am clay on the potter's wheel. I need to be shaped. I need to be formed. Sometimes I need to be squished together and slapped back down on that potter's wheel so that God can start over and shape me into something that he can use. And anytime we try to justify those words or actions from the past or link them to today, that's usually a step of saying, God, I don't actually need you. I'm operating in my strength and my wisdom. And God might just bring someone like Joab to remind us of the truth we need to hear in that very moment. Humility listens more. Humility waits before responding. And I think the question I have for myself and for each of us today, besides your own pride, what's keeping you from just simply getting up and going to sit beside the gate? as David did, as that act of practical movement toward reconciliation and restoration. And he said, you know, I'm just going to do what Joab said. I'm tempted to say a lot of things. I could bring up uh, the commander Abner that he killed after Saul's reign ended, the, the commander that I had formed an alliance with and had established some trust with in my efforts to unite Israel. I could bring up the murder of my own son just a chapter ago, but I'm just going to keep silent and humble myself because it won't cost me anything but my own pride to go and sit by the gate as an example to the people and bring some hope to a nation that needs to be restored and reunited. And so David does that. And yet, as it is in real life, the messy reality never quite aligns with the utopian ideal. You know that, that precious little baby James that we got to meet today? As cute as he is, as wonderful he is, he is a little sleep deprivation torture device, right? Yeah, I'm seeing the purple bags under the eyes, right? And the newlyweds, you know, as much as those wedding bells have been ringing since you were four years old, young lady, marriage is tough. There's hard parts that come with that, the messy reality of something that actually is good as well. And here as we're moving toward unity as a nation, there's fits and starts, there's one step forward and two steps back at times. There's the reality of a nation that has been really divided, and we'll see that as we continue into the next episode here in chapter 19. David sitting at the gate, 
The people are coming before him. And then at the end of verse 8, Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. Israel, in, that, in this case, is the troops that had been loyal to Absalom. So it's the northern tribes where Jerusalem is. So the use of Israel here. These, the, the, formerly, uh, the, the people who had been formerly allied to Absalom have now scattered, gone to their own homes. They're not en masse in one area. And there's argument going on there. It says in verse 9, all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. Now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. That's group A, I think, here. And then verse 10, but Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And so there's an argument happening among those northern tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes, uh, each of these individuals all with an opinion. There's disunity continuing. There's chaos. There's fear. There's upheaval. There's reality from the past that's coming to bear on the present circumstances. And it's a real cacophony of opinions, ideas. But really at the heart of it, there's still disunity among God's people. Meanwhile, David is aware of what's happening there in the northern tribes, but also in Judah. Things are tenuous as well. And so David starts there because he's hearing the murmurs of of resolving argument there in the northern tribes, and they are coming with one voice at the end there of verse 10, an idea of let's bring the king back to Jerusalem. And so David sends a message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Say to the elders of Judah, now the two southern tribes, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Sorry for the typo in your bulletin there. Very top, in case you caught that. This is the correct word here, not gone. You are my bone and my flesh. That was my bad. And David continues, God do so to me and more also. Uh, And he's he's speaking now to Amasa. Amasa is the commander that Absalom had put over the armies of Israel. Now, if you're Amasa at this point in history, you're probably pretty nervous because you were the commander of the armies of the guy who just got executed. And so David, in in an attempt at reconciliation, in a way of reuniting not just the northern ten tribes of Israel, but the entire nation, sends this message to Judah, and he takes a practical step. As he did at the end of Saul's reign, the beginning of 2 Samuel, when he welcomed the commander of Saul's army and said, you're going to be the new commander in place of Joab. He now does that again with Amasa. So the message he sends in verse 13. Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. There's movement toward reunification there's been repair attempts made there's been efforts at reconciliation it's still messy it's still taking time there's still arguments opinions flying around and yet there's this movement 
toward the Jordan River to celebrate the king passing over into the land God had promised generations prior when he delivered Moses and the Israelites from the land of Egypt. Once again, reenacting that story of moving from wilderness to the land of promise, moving from worshiping God in tents to the, to the center of worship in Jerusalem, where the one true God, maker of heaven and earth, can be upheld and glorified that all the nations will hear and see and know. And there's excitement. There's, there's still tension, but there's movement towards that reunification. So along the way, now as we get to the Jordan River, there's going to be some other parties coming to the scene. Not just Judah and their representatives coming and Israel as they're beginning to resolve this conflict and this dispute about should we bring David back or what, what's the plan? Where are we going next? But there's a few characters from past stories that we're going to encounter here once again. The first is a man named Shimei. And we met Shimei in chapter 16. This is the guy who had come when David was fleeing from Absalom, heading into the wilderness. It says in chapter 16 that he cursed continually. One man approaching David and his warriors on their way into the wilderness. This is a brave dude. Not real wise, but brave, foolish. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, right? And so he's coming, he's cursing continually. He's throwing stones, the direct quote from Shimei in chapter 16. Get out, you worthless man, you man of blood. He's accusing David of the blood of Saul and Jonathan. And he's flinging dust. He's following them along the opposite hillside, throwing dust, throwing stones, throwing words at David. And, and you know the character that we meet twice, Abishai, this guy's always wanting to pull out a sword. And, and back in chapter 16, he's like, David, can I just go kill him right now? And David, David takes a humble uh, view on these insults that are being hurled at him. says, you know, maybe this is from God. Maybe this is some stuff that God told him to say to me. Who am I to, put, to silence him? It's up to God. If God wants to speak words of blessing and restoration in my life, he can do that in his time. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. And so now, as we're reading, Shimei's coming back into the story. What's going to happen here? So Shimei is the first guy that's coming down. And it says, verse 16, Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. Another character here that you may re remember. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. So just a brief mention of Ziba. We've met him a few times in the story. So Saul, the first king of Israel. His son Jonathan was David's good friend. Jonathan's son Mephibosheth is the last surviving member of that whole dynasty of Saul. And there was a servant named Ziba who served Jonathan and is now entrusted with caring for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. And so Ziba, we encountered earlier, he came out to David and cooked up a story about Mephibosheth. Said, actually, Mephibosheth is disloyal to you. And in the wilderness... David said, okay, Ziba, I, I take your word for it. You get everything that used to belong to Mephibosheth. 
And so we're going we're gonna to meet both of them again here in this, in this story as David is returning to the throne. But back to Shimei, the end of verse 18. Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Let me read that beginning of verse 20 again. See if you, if you detect any echoes from any point in David's own life. Your servant knows that I have sinned. What did David himself say when Nathan the prophet came to him in chapter 12 and told the story about the rich, the rich man who lived next to a poor man with one lamb and that rich man on a day that he needed to entertain a guest? He said, we're going to serve euros and I'll take that lamb, thank you. And David hears this story of injustice and abuse of power. And David said, that man needs to die. That, that is so wrong. The death penalty is all that, that, that would suffice in this case. And Nathan points his finger at David and says, you are that man. Because David had seen his neighbor's wife and taken her and had Uriah killed to cover up for his sin with Bathsheba. What was David's response when Nathan, the prophet, pointed his finger at him and said, you are that man? I have sinned against the Lord. And here David is having this surreal experience as the man who hurled dust at him and stones at him and cursed him along the path at his lowest moment when his son is taking the throne and he's having to flee from Jerusalem. And now this man, Shimei, is before him once again and he's hearing echoes of his own words. I have sinned. What's David going to do in this instance? Shimei continues his plea Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, same guy that wanted to pull out the sword in chapter 16, Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Abishai, chill out. David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? There's another son of Zariah that's quick to pull out a sword. His name is Joab. And so there's a way of being, a way of interacting with others that's quick to grab the sword. It's quick to seek to avenge. It's quick to, sh- to spill blood for past wrongs, even in a time of peace. And David says, I don't have anything to do with that whole way of living. That Joab approach to life. So Abishai, put away your sword. What do I have to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. That's the exact response that Nathan gave to David on the day that David repented and confessed and said, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said, you shall not die. There's still going to be consequences, David. But the Lord has heard your confession and seen your repentance and he will preserve your life. And so David, having learned the forgiveness of God at a personal level, 
is now operating in the heart of God and extending that to someone who has wronged him. He would have been justified as the king to say, you know, Abishai, yeah, go ahead. Get out the sword in this case. And yet, he's hearing echoes of his own story of redemption and restoration. And when he had been in disunity with the living God, and God offered hope of restoration and forgiveness to him, that gift, that joy that comes in being restored, it affects the ways that we see those who have hurt us and wronged us. And so David is modeling being quick to forgive as one who was quick to be forgiven by God and his mercy and his grace. Now, to see the end of the story of Shimei, you would have to go ahead to uh, the end of David's life, the uh, the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 2 as as David's own son Solomon is now taking the throne, that chapter really has, it's, it ties up all of the stories we're reading here today in 2 Samuel 19 and 20. Shimei is mentioned there. Joab is mentioned in that story. Barzillai is mentioned there as well. We're going to meet him, him in just a moment. So really, that would be a parallel text for you to study on your own. Go to 2 Kings chapter 2 and read kind of the end of the story. So as Solomon is taking the throne... David's last words are to give him some caution and some context from the past. And Shimei is one of those guys that he brings up to Solomon. Um, and, he, and he basically says, Solomon, exercise wisdom toward this guy. You know what happened. You know what he said and did. Don't let him go down to the grave in peace. Uh, but he needs to be held accountable for some of those things he said and did to the king of Israel. And so essentially Solomon places Shimei under house arrest there in 2 Kings chapter 2. And he says, you know, come here to Jerusalem, build a house, don't ever leave the house. If you ever cross the brook Kidron, that will be your choice. Your blood will be on your own hands and you will have decided, I want to die today because I'm breaking the king's commands. Shimei says, that seems very fair, I agree with you and I will obey these instructions. And that works for many days until three years later when a couple of his servants flee, and Shimei thinks, you know, I can, the king's not watching. I'm just going to sneak out of Jerusalem and go and bring my servants back. And word comes to King Solomon, and he goes, I warned you, off with your head. So that's the end of the story of Shimei. It calls the question really his loyalty, the genuineness of his uh, confession here as he comes down to meet David. He's still following those patterns that we saw in chapter 16 at the end of his life in 1 Kings chapter 2. But I think the hope here is that full circle of repentance that we see in David, where David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. And now Shimei, bringing an echo of those same words to David, your servant knows that I have sinned, and now David with that opportunity to extend grace and forgiveness as well. And the message to us is that once you have received God's forgiveness, live it out. Put it into practice. Have it impact the way that you relate to those who have wronged you. Continuing on here, the next person that we meet is Mephibosheth himself. Coming down, Jonathan's son, the son of Saul, he came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, 
Why did you not go out with me, Mephibosheth? The king, knowing what Ziba had said about Mephibosheth, claiming that Mephibosheth was disloyal, had looked for an opportunity when, when David had, had fled Jerusalem to say, I'm reestablishing the throne of my grandfather Saul. So those were the lies that had been spoken. And now David's asking about this disloyalty, this accusation. And Mephibosheth answered in verse 26, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. That be Ziba. Your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore whatever seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry out to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. To me, uh, partially, David is exercising the same sort of wisdom that we see Solomon using at the beginning of his reign as he's brought with a matter of injustice between two women who are disputing a living child, both claiming that it's their own. And Solomon in that case says, I can't really figure out what reality is here in this moment. So I'm just going to say, I'm going to put it back in your hands. Divide the baby, you each get half. And then the, the true mother of the baby says, no, give it, give it to her. I want, I want my child's life more than I want to, to argue with this woman. And so Solomon exercises wisdom in that case. David, really in a similar way, he's not able to look into the intentions and, and reality and discern what's really happening here between Ziba and Mephibosheth. He's hearing mixed accounts. So he says, all right, fine, just split it half and half, 50-50. Ziba gets half, you get half. But in Mephibosheth's words there in that last verse, his loyalty is confirmed and affirmed. When he says, it's not about the wealth and the possessions and the inheritance. Give it all to him. I'm just relieved to see you back on the throne, David. So there are faithful people along the way as David is extending forgiveness. It's messy. It's complicated. There's the Shemais who may still uh, have an ulterior motive. And yet David extends forgiveness. There's a Mephibosheth who you're not really sure whose side he's on. And yet he actually is loyal. And now there's another elderly man that we meet in verse 31 named Barzillai the Gileadite. He'd come down from Rogalim and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. No offense if you're in that octogenarian range. But he had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. And Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? 
Why then should your servant be an added burden to the Lord my king, to my Lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own home. This is a humble elderly man saying, honor this man Chimham in my place. Because king, what you're offering is so good but my days are so short that I wish that you'd bless this other person in my place. Who is Chimham? Well, if you look ahead to, again, that chapter in 1 Kings 2 where a lot of these stories are tied up, it appears that Chimham is likely one of Barzillai's sons because there David, in his last words, his instructions to his son Solomon, says, Solomon, deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite. And let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. So as I'm reading the story of Barzillai, saying, you know, take this man and bless him and honor him. Give him the good food from your table. Let him hear the, the singing and the music as part of the royal family in my place. My days are short. I just want a simple life back at home among my people near that funeral plot where my family members are. But I, I, I desire those blessings for my son. And so, King, I give you my son. Take him and bless him. And David is impressed by that selfless action, that humility, to the point that he is kissing Barzillai, expressing affection. He's blessing him. And he's honoring him by doing what he's requested. That's not the happy ending of this story of reunification of Israel. Unfortunately, there's still the messy reality working itself out among the tribes of Israel and Judah. And you get a picture of that here in the next verse. That, that continued disunity among the people of God. Verse 40, The king went on to Gilgal and Chimham went with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. And that's a little precursor to some of the tension we're going to see at the end of this chapter, the beginning of the next. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? This reminds me of churches like arguing over the color of the carpeting. The, you know, do we use hymnals or overhead projectors, right? You know, the, what a petty thing to argue about. You know, the kid, your, your own child. I get to ride shotgun. No, you got to last time. Mom, she took the bigger piece of pizza. Doesn't it seem like one of those disputes? All of Israel, seriously, guys, you're fighting over who gets to walk from the Jordan back to Jerusalem with you first? Reunification is the point, brothers and sisters. 
And yet there's still this me-first mentality that's slowing that process down. And so all the men of Judah answer the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. Ten tribes of Israel. And in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Again, it seems very petty when you look at it. Like, guys, the point is the king is coming back to Jerusalem. We're all in agreement about this. Can't we just walk together? Why are we arguing about who was first with this idea? And who's more important? Who's got a greater share? And who was more right? And it creates an opportunity as this fragile reconciliation, reunification, restoration is moving forward, whenever there's these subtle, self-centered motives and actions that creep in, there's an opportunity for things to blow up once again. And so that's the worthless man that we meet here in chapter 20 who seizes that opportunity in this moment when there's fierce words going back and forth, one-upsmanship, arguing, disputing, who said what first, who gets the credit. There happen to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Calling those ten tribes to continue the rebellion that Absalom started. Continue the disunity of God's people. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. And that's to wrap up a story that that we touched on at a couple other points earlier in 2 Samuel, where as David was fleeing Jerusalem, he left members of his household there. It almost looks like he was expecting to return, and so he left 10 members of his harem there to care for the palace until he could be reunited with Absalom and return. But Absalom's advisor, Abiathar, saw that as an opportunity for Absalom to really draw a firm line between he and his dad. And so Absalom took these ten women as his own wives and did it in a very public way on the palace roof. And so now David coming back is in the best way he can, bringing restoration, the pain of a past memory. He's caring for these women, providing for them. That the, the family is reunited as best it can be after such an incident. So David, despite now this threat from Sheba and now all Israel who are following him is continuing with this path of reunification and restoration, making things right. And then the king takes action. He says to Amasa, the commander that he's put in charge of the army above Joab, 
Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. So it took him more than three days. David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. There's another potential threat, another usurper, another one that's going to cause the division and the disunity to continue. The anxiety that's in the system is still here. It's just taken on a new face. It went from Absalom to Sheba, and we need to deal decisively with the root problem here, which is disunity. So hunt this one man down and take care of him. And so Abishai heads off, and in verse 7, there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And then when they were at a great stone, at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. That's the new commander that David said, get ready for battle. We're moving in three days. So now Joab, the former commander, with his warriors encounters Amasa, the new commander, on the way to hunt down Sheba, the usurper. Are you keeping all these names straight? It's confusing, right? You might need to make a chart. Tina, are you getting all these? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? Okay. So let's go over that again. Joab, the former commander. Amasa, the new commander, who got Joab's job. Meet each other on the way to hunt down Sheba, who is leading the revolt against David. So what does Joab do? Well, he's an opportunist. Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh, and as he went forward, it fell out. It's on his left side, not in the hand that you would expect to see a sword where everybody's right-handed, except for rare exceptions that are explicitly mentioned in here. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard. I think if, you know, next time you guys see Larry Hobbs, I think this is a Hebrew sign of affection. I would encourage you to, to do this. Not the second part, but just the greeting by the beard part. And he took him by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. You can leave that out. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. Obviously his left hand, if he's hanging onto his beard with the right, pulling him in for a kiss. And Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. This is the commander of David's army. David has just talked to Amasa and said, you are the new commander in Joab's place. This is a gutsy move. No pun intended. But once again, Joab taking matters into his own hands. One of the characteristics of Hebrew narrative is a lot of times you'll hear the story and then it'll go into greater detail. So we've got greater detail about the entrails being spilled and exactly what happened 
which I know that the teenage boys will enjoy. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Here's Amasa twitching on the ground here. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood by the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, the city of Abel of Beth Maacah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. So this is a fortified, walled city, just like David had feared. Sheba has made it to one of these fortified cities. Joab, having, having dealt with the guy who was supposed to get his job and left him out in a, you know, first on a major thoroughfare, now dragged off into the field and covered up. He's now back in command of, of the armies of Israel. And he's gotten to this walled city of Abel, and he's about to destroy the city to drag this man out, Sheba, who is now walking in the footsteps of Absalom to try to rally the, the northern tribes of Israel around himself as their leader. And here's when wisdom from an unexpected source comes once again, this time to Joab. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen! Listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her. And the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. That's our city, Joab. That's where you are today. The city that you're preparing to destroy to seek out one man that you're hunting. And the wise woman continues, I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? It's, it's a bold confrontation with a guy who's just gotten done murdering someone in cold blood on the way to her city. And he's there prepared to kill whoever is needed to hunt down the one man that's a threat to King David, Sheba. And she calls him out and speaks truth to him that he needs to hear and confronts him. That's a courageous act by a wise woman. She ties it in with the past story of, of Israel as a city where there has been wisdom and there's been discretion and discernment in the past. And she holds herself out as one who has been faithful and peaceable. And Joab says to her, it gets to, it gets to him, her words sink in. Joab says, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy 
That is not true. I didn't come here to destroy your city. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Leave it to me, Joab, I'll take care of it. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. And the chapter closes with a, a list of Joab's court as now that the, the nation has been reunited. This is the last episode in that, in that step toward reuniting Israel and, and Judah and wrapping up the story of Absalom and the repercussions from that. It says, Joab was in command of the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jehodiah, was in command of the Cherethites and Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. Shiva, the secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. And Ira, the gyrite, was also David's priest. This is really just a legal, formal conclusion to that the uprising, the dissension, the discord, the disunity. And now it's been a messy road, but... There's been a reuniting of God's people. There's still some loose threads to tie up. There's a guy like Joab who's still in the mix. His story is, is resolved in 2 Kings chapter 2 as well. He's one of the people that David warns his son Solomon about and says, look out for Joab. But, but go, go and read 2 Kings, or 1 Kings 2. I keep saying 2 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 2 the beginning of Solomon's reign, and see what are David's concerns about Joab that he passes on. He doesn't mention Absalom. He doesn't say, Solomon, deal with Joab because he killed my boy. But he does say, deal with Joab because he was quick to shed blood in a time of peace. And the two examples he gives are the two commanders of really his enemy's armies the commander of Saul's army early in David's reign that Joab killed, and then the commander of his own son Absalom's army that we just read about here today. And so all along, David's heart had been to reach out to those who had wronged him or allied against him and not to write someone off and say, your story is written. I'll never extend grace or forgiveness or mercy to you. There was always this look in David's eyes that said, I can see your potential. I see hope of God's grace in your future. And I'm going to be the first to extend grace and forgiveness and give you a chance not just to live in a prison in the palace, but I'm going to actually entrust you with the things that you are gifted at, which is leading troops. I'm going to take you, even though you served my enemy, my adversary, I'm going to let you command my own army. And yet Joab was an opportunist and he wanted to secure his own job and his own position. But his story doesn't end well. I'll just give you that. You can read it yourself in 1 Kings 2. His way of acting and being in the world that he created, he ends up having to live in that world himself. So you can read the end of his story there in 1 Kings 2. This has not been just a couple chapters of 
some entertaining stories from ancient history that'll never make it into the, you know, onto the flannel graph and kids' ministry, no entrails, no dragging a bloody body off the path and covering it up. But there's lessons for us to learn today. And the disunity that we read about here in the nation of Israel, the disunity among God's people and within God's people, that disunity exists at a personal level in each heart in this room. Because there's a disunity between you and your maker. A disunity between you and the the one true God maker of heaven and earth. And there's two parts that are required for reconciliation, right? So, you know, we talked about being trusting and being trustworthy. You know, absent either one of those, the best you can have is forgiveness. And that's a good place to start. There's times that you've been wronged by someone who's not even on this earth anymore. Reconciliation is not possible in that case. And so you're called as followers of Christ to give forgiveness in those events. But reconciliation is different. That's a two-party effort. It's someone saying, I acknowledge the past hurt that I've brought upon you and I give you an assurance that I've changed and I will be different from this time forward. And it's you going, okay, this is going to be tough, but I'm going to trust you. And then that person behaving in a trustworthy fashion. That's the path toward reconciliation. What about that disunity that exists between every man, woman, and child? The disunity between us and the living God. There's also two parts that are required in that. There is a sacrifice and there is forgiveness. Okay? So when you are divided from the Holy God because of your sin, which is any action that's against the heart of God, there is sacrifice required and there's forgiveness required. The bad news is that you can't uphold either end of that deal. It's not yours to forgive because you're the one who has wronged the Holy God. And your sacrifice is never enough to make your sins right. No good deed can ever offset the wrong that you have committed against God in turning your back from Him and chasing after other things that draw our attention, pursuing our own desire, acting like Joab. Whatever that sin issue is, your sacrifice will never make it right. That's the bad news. The good news that we're going to celebrate today through communion is that God upholds both ends of that deal. And he makes it possible for us to be reconciled to him. He gives both the sacrifice in his son Jesus on the cross, adequately, sufficiently, abundantly paying the price that we owe. And then he brings the second part of it, the forgiveness, where he restores us to himself He overlooks the ways that we threw stones at him and dust and cursed him through our actions and words. And he says, you shall not die because my son paid the price for you and you're forgiven. I think that's a reason to celebrate today and to rejoice. And then when someone comes to us and they are seeking our forgiveness, to always have that in mind and in our hearts and to live it out, that forgiveness that we've received to give that to others. So today, as we prepare our hearts for communion, we're going to give thanks for what God has done. This is something that we do as a church family. 
And so if you're, a, if you're a member of the church, if you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ, then we're going to take communion in remembrance of him. Maybe you're visiting here today from a different church and you're not able to take communion with your church family today, but we're glad to have you here with us and we invite you to join with us today. If you're in the category of still learning what it is to be a follower of Jesus, then today, observe. Learn. Be like David sitting at the gate. And you don't, you don't need to take communion. In fact, I'd encourage you to not take communion if you're not a follower of Jesus. But we'd like to give you that opportunity today as well. Talk to myself. Uh, talk to one of the other, any, anyone around you and say, hey, I, I want to know what this is to give my life to Jesus. And we'd like to have you be a part of our church family as well as those who serve him.